Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. most holy triune God be all glory, honor, and praise. To you we owe all life and liberty and substance. Your word commands us to give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And Father, we give thanks for your wonderful, amazing grace this morning. Without it, we would be without hope, with no joy and no salvation. We would still be children of disobedience and enemies of God without reconciliation. But God Because you are rich in your mercy and because of the great love with which you loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were rebellious, you made us alive together with Christ, for we have been saved by grace and grace alone. We come here this morning to praise the Father who has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Yet we know today very clearly that we still struggle with our sin. We find ourselves facing temptation that many times seems way too strong for us to resist. Remind us of your word that promises that you will not let us be tempted beyond our ability, but you'll also provide a way of escape and that we may be able to endure it as Christ endured. Holy Spirit, strengthen us this morning to resist Satan and his desire to destroy our character and to draw us away from God. We also know that we will fail on this side of heaven. And we pray that when we do, that you will give us the gift of repentance that leads to confession of sin and leads to life. We cry out the prayer of your servant David, who cried, Have mercy on us, O God. According to your steadfast love and to your abundant mercy, blot out our sins. Wash us thoroughly from our sin and cleanse us. For we know that our sin is ever before us. And we understand that it's against you and you only have we sinned and done what's evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Though being brought forth in iniquity and sin where we conceived, you delight in the truth, the inward being. And you've taught us wisdom in the secret heart. Purge us this morning and we shall be clean. Wash us and we shall be whiter than snow. Let all your people this morning hear joy and gladness. And let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Let us find hope this morning in your grace. Hide your face from our sins and blot out all of our iniquities. Create in each and one of us a clean heart this morning. Renew a right spirit. Do not cast us away from your presence nor take your Holy Spirit from our presence. Restore to us the joy of your salvation and uphold us with a willing spirit. We pray this in the name of Jesus until that day we are delivered from the presence of sin. Blessings and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and prayer and power and might be at our God forever and ever. And God's people said, Amen. Take your Bibles if you would and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. And chapter 12, let me give you the story of a woman who is also a pastor. Her name is Desiree Allen. 
And I give you her name because she herself blogs on it, and this is her testimony. She serves as a pastor of arts and spiritual formation in New York City. She revealed just recently in a blog post that she discovered she was expecting in May on Mother's Day while on vacation on Disney World. Well, you hear maybe a woman preacher. You may say, okay, all right, that, that happens. But the story is not that she is a woman preacher. The story is, is this New York City pastor who got pregnant with twins is after premarital sex with her fiancé. And she says that she will not be shamed from the pulpit and has vowed to keep preaching with pride until she can no longer waddle on stage. She explained that she chose not to carry the weight of others' opinions and judgments, including my own, on her shoulders because she was happy about her pregnancy. Often, she writes, when people think you've done something wrong or sin, they want you to walk around with your head low in guilt. Otherwise, how would they know you were sorry? Well, I wasn't sorry or ashamed. Shame and happiness cannot reside in the same place. I decided to only surround myself with those who had positive energy. I knew there would be rough days, but I also knew that the good would outweigh the bad. So when the first comments were made about my pregnancy being an abomination, I wasn't bothered because it wasn't my truth. Plus, who uses abomination anyway? Can we say intiguated, she wrote? Well, after wrestling with the initial dread she felt about going public with her pregnancy, she decided to reveal the news to her executive pastor about three months in at an annual staff retreat and was shocked by the response she got. The words kind of fell out of my mouth in front of everyone, she writes. I explained my joy and the importance this did not undo and diminish all the work and dedication I had put in for six years. I felt empowered. I shared what I wanted to share, how I wanted to share on my own terms. I wasn't responding to anyone or defending myself. I was standing in my truth. She goes on the road to write, in, a moment, in that moment I will never forget. Our executive pastor had the staff encircle around me and they began to pray. A noise that can only be described as a wail left my mouth and I broke to the point of needing a chair to sit in. I broke in the most beautiful way possible in the breaking I was free. That ugly Jesus cry released every anxiety, fear, and worry holding me down. They promised to protect me and support me and in that moment, I saw God. It was a moment that transcended boundaries or judgment. It was pure love. I felt free, she explained. Not sure where to really begin in that series, in that blog post. You have a woman who's pastoring, who's involved in premarital sex with her fiancé, boyfriend, becomes pregnant and feels no shame, which I'm not asking some to feel shame, but standing in the truth that there's nothing wrong with it. And then the time comes when her pastor and Christian friends should embrace her. I'm not saying they shouldn't, but yet in the same way, embrace in such a way that they support her truth. Well, as we go to David, we have seen that God's kindness and faithfulness to David is in center place as he promises David prestige, possession, peace, prosperity, and parentage. As he adopts him, he begins a new relation with him and permanence. These promises 
were not based on David's goodness, but on God's grace. Death does not annul it, sin cannot destroy it, and time will not exhaust it. King David was not an active initiator of this great promise of this kingdom that will last forever, but he was a passive recipient of the promises of God. In today's passage, in a passage that's very famous and well-known, David and Bathsheba, we see that he too finds himself in a similar position of this lady we spoke of. He has experienced both the justice and mercy of God in chapter 11 and chapter 12. David, as we shall see, is not the final seed. He is not the promised Messiah, nor is he the final righteous king. But as we shall see today, David, the man who we have upheld for now for several weeks and looking at how he was a servant of God, how he was a man after God's own heart, and how he pointed to Christ, we are going to see that David himself is a sinner who needed a Savior. Though described as a man who served God, had a heart for God, and pointed to Christ, he is also a man like you and I who was under the curse of sin. Unlike us, he also succumbed to the passions of the flesh. So Father, as we open up this word, we do not want to come and look at a way in which we're saying, look at them, but not look at me. Father, we want to open our hearts to your word and see what it is that you have for us. So give us clear minds. Let us receive what you have. Lord, keep the distractions to a minimum. And Lord, may we respond to your Holy Spirit's word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you're with me in 2 Samuel chapter 11, I want to read verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. The setting we see is war in springtime. Since the promise of a kingdom that would last forever, God has continued to bless David, as we saw in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel. And he gave him not only peace abroad from his enemies, but also peace with Saul's house, who looked to try to upsurd him and kill him at every point, as David shows compassion to Saul's grandson. The scripture tells us that David reigned over all of Israel and that he administered justice and equity to all his people. This is a time of peace for the most part. There is, however, one stubborn enemy left. That's the nation of Ammon. David had led Israel to war against them due to an insult found in chapter 10. It's interesting, out of all the wars that David goes to, this is one in which he did not come to the Lord beforehand and say, should I go up? They insulted David, and David retaliates by going to war against Ammon. So as we look at 11 and 12, we're looking at about a year and a half in which the background is a war going on. And that's important as we continue with the story. David's response to this insult by Ammon is an all-out assault that ends with the enemy fleeing to their city for protection right before winter. This chapter, as we come upon chapter 11 then, begins with the snows melted, the roads passable, the roads cleared for travel, and Israel moving to finish the job as they surround that city and begin to lay siege to it. But this time... Instead of going to war, David stays home. And so I want to give you some observation as we look at it. And the first one is we're going to see 
that no one is exempt from the dangers of temptation and sin. Look at verse 2. And it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So in verse 4, David sent messengers. He took her and she came to him and lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. This moment is David is not at war. He forgets the blessing and the kindness of God. At this moment, as he sees Bathsheba, he's blinded by her beauty to the peace, the rest, the rule that is meant to lead him to repentance. But instead, it leads him to self-indulgence and pride and covetousness. What we see here is that an attitude and lifestyle of idleness and self-indulgence leads David to sin. And you and I need to realize that as we talk about David, the journey into sin, the journey into sin is not usually walking, 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 and then a giant fall into it. It's a gradual process into sin. And what we see as we look at David is that an idle and self-indulgent lifestyle is going to lead him into this sin. We see a self-indulgent David taking a break. He's not joining his men in battle. The proper place for David, the king of Israel, was to be with his men. That was how it was done in this day. And now we think about, well, the president stays here and the generals go out. And this is how modern warfare, but not in those days. David is the one who ordered his men. This is done by an insult. He goes without praying and then he doesn't even go at all. It almost seems like he's being lazy. He's a sluggard, enjoying his life. It almost seems like it happened late one afternoon that he rose from his couch and said, here he is in the middle of the afternoon and he's taking a nap. Now, this is not a uh, uh, doctrine against taking naps. I am very much for the doctrine of taking naps, right? Amen, right? So I plan it on. To me, a good day is when I wake up and say, you know what, I get to take a nap today. That is a good day. So I'm not criticizing here, but here he is. As his men is at war, he's taking naps. His life is one of idleness, self-indulgent. He's living up the peace and the blessings that God gives him. Many times that's how sin enters our life. We feel like we're owed a rest, a break. We can do what we want. We feel like it's my time now. However, one theologian notes that the idleness gives great advantage to the tempter. He makes a great phrase, standing water gathers filth. You can picture that, a water that just sets there. What happens to it? It gathers filth. And there's an old thing, I think it's from Music Man or something like that, where idleness is the devil's playground. We have to realize that idleness many times is going to lead us down the wrong path. Hence, that's why Scripture warns us in 1 Peter 5.8. He says, be sober-minded, be in control. Do not let your mind wander. Do not be drunken. Do not let you have your mind altered. Why? Because you need to be watchful. Be watchful for what? Well, if you're in 1 Peter 5, 8, or you know it, you don't have to turn there. It says, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. This tells us temptation comes when we least expect it in times of peace and rest and success. 
Typically, that's when a big fall is ready to happen. When we feel like we're old, when we're walking around, and we feel like we got life by the coattails, right? Or that we've got it under the handles. You see, we usually don't plan on moral failure. David wasn't planning on this, but he falls into it. Absent here is the man who proclaimed in Psalms 119. How can a young man keep his way pure? By gardening according to your word. Where is the man who said, with my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Or the man who wrote, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I'm not sure if David wrote this before or after. But where was that man? Something had changed in the heart of David who wrote in Psalm 16, 8, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand and I shall not be shaken. At this point, the relationship between David and God is pretty shaky. It seems that his idleness and his self-indulgence is leading him away from the God of his youth, from the one that he loved and adored. And he allows his eyes to wander something has changed in the heart of David for he says I have set the Lord before me I think because my right hand I shall not shake the progression of David's journey into sin is very similar to Eve's that we see in Genesis chapter 3 in Genesis chapter 3 we read that when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was the light to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise she took of its fruit and it ate and she gave to the man who was with her she saw, she inquired, it was good for the food, it was delight for the eyes, desire to make one wise. She thought about it, she contemplated it, and then she took. In the same way, David saw, he looked at her, he inquired, she is beautiful, she's married, but yet she's available because her husband is off at war, and then he took. That's how you and I, our sin goes the same way. We see, we contemplate, and then we take. We reason our way into sin. And then we wonder how we're in this box with everything closed. We're like the monkey who grabs for a banana in a bottle and can't get his hand out because he still won't let go of the banana. You know that illustration? Until he lets go, he can't get his hand back out. Or maybe you and I, sin is like those Chinese torture things. What is, remember those? You put your fingers in it and you can't get your finger out. That's what you and I are doing. All the time realizing if all we do is push together, we can take it out. But yet, we're captured by sin in the same way. James warns us, the brother of Jesus, that each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Satan doesn't need to come from without to tempt you. He takes the work that's already there. He's like a carpenter that walks into a wood shop and sees all the material and builds something from what's there. That's what Satan does. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. In this case, we will see that it will actually cost two people their lives, but it begins with a look. It begins with contemplating it. That second glance, that desiring it, that reasoning that you deserve it, that it's there for you, that you can get away with it, and then you take. 
David should have remembered the vow of Job who lived hundreds of years before him, who said, I make a covenant with my eyes not to look with lust at a young woman. David did not practice what was commanded in Deuteronomy. Take your Bibles if you would, please. Hold your hand there in 2 Samuel and turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Now we have looked at this previously when it talked about the kings of Israel. Even though Israel did not ask for a king until the day of the judges, at the end of the judges with Samuel, God had providentially and sovereignly know that they would one day ask for a king. And so he had set into motion some commands. So Deuteronomy chapter 17, look at verse 17. This was a warning for the kings of Israel. He says, And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. So you see the command there. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. Verse 19. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear his God by keeping all his words of his law and the statues in doing them, that his heart, in verse 20, may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from his commandment, either to the right hand, to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. This is what David was to do. Do not let the king acquire many wives. Do not let him acquire many riches. But he's also supposed to, with his own hand, copy the law and let the priest look it over to make sure that it's correct. And he shall read it and he shall watch over it and keep it in his heart. However, David did not obey. Whether he ever wrote the copy of the law, we do not know. But we know that his heart was lifted above his brothers. Because he considered Uriah. She's married to Uriah. He considered that, but he lifted his heart above his brother and said, well, I would desire, what I desire is above what he has. David did not obey. Scripture tells us that David acquired many wives over the years. Though he was a man after God's own heart, he suffered from the lack of sexual restraint. One commentator notes that not used to controlling his lust, David acted upon his impulses and he gave in to his desires. What we see that is no man is exempt from sin. David himself fell into it and it's no wonder that he fell into this one. While on the verge of capturing one city, Rabbah from Ammon, his own walls fall to an enemy's attack. David's lack of self-control would cost David his honor his family, and almost his life and crown. So no one is exempt. Even David, the hero of faith, the man who served God in his own generation, allowed himself to fall into sin, consciously making the journey into it. Second point I want you to know is to understand that sin will lead you farther into sin, for it does not end there. David tries to cover it up. He sends for her husband, Uriah, on the pretense of receiving an update on the war. However, David's real plan was to give Uriah a conjugal visit with his wife in order to give them both plausible deniability about who the child's parentage was. 
Yet we read that Uriah's integrity was much stronger than David. He refused to go to his own house while his men were on the battleground. Unlike David, he said, I cannot sleep in the comfort and the safety of my own bed while my men are out facing battle. Twice, David tries to entice Uriah to go down to his house, but Uriah refuses to do so. David thinks himself in control of the situation, but he fails to control Uriah, who is listed as one of the mighty men of David. He is a hero, yet he dies because of the sin of David. For it's not enough to try to cover it up, because once that failed, David then engages others to cover up his sin. Whether it was the household servants who were living there and doing the gossip, he now was going to pull Joab into his plan. For he's in a quandary. So he commands his general Joab to have Uriah killed, but make it to look like it was part of the battle. In this case, the pin was mightier than the sword, as David commands Joab to sacrifice Uriah to cover up his own sin. So now David adds murder to his adultery and to his deceit. This old proverb, its author is lost over time, is still true. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you more than you want to pay. One commentator notes the ripple effect of David's sin or our sin goes way beyond the time and place of the act. David's sin will reverb down through his line from that point on. Let's go back to 2 Samuel chapter 11. And hence we see that sin never just affects just ourselves. There's no such thing as private sins or consenting adults. Sin always has a price. 2 Samuel chapter 11, look at verse 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. So at least David here is trying to make right what went wrong, or at least trying to cover up his sin more so. David thinks that with the death of Uriah, all is well. He must have breathed a sigh of relief. It's over. He goes on with his life and he continues. We do not see a man who is repentant. We do not see a man who confesses his sin. We see a man who is still hardened into saying, well, I'm going to continue as if life never changed. However, this chapter ends with a very sad commentary. And look at verse 27. For David thinks that he's done. He's gotten away with it. But look at verse 27. But the thing that David had done, what? Displeased the Lord. If this chapter ended right here, it would be the worst story even more so. But the Lord was displeased. Yahweh may be silent, but he's not sightless. Our sin may be done in darkness, yet God sees all. Scripture warns us in Ephesians 4.30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. 
The writer of Hebrew warns us that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and attentions of the heart. God is not blinded to our sin, even when done in darkness or in secret. No creature, the writer writes, is hidden from God's sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eye of him in whom we must give account. Let me tell you, as you and I stand before God, without Christ, the same sentence could be said of us. But the thing that Rob had done displeased the Lord. The life that you are living has displeased the Lord. That's all of our lives before a holy and just God. Jesus warned his disciples that nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will be not known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. We are all guilty. We all stand in the same shoes as David. If these words of this chapter were the last thing written about David, he would be a man most pitied. However, he is not. Though David is now an adulterer and a murderer, he will receive both the justice and the mercy of God. And here's where I think is that when we look at this story, many of us can judge David very harshly. We could say if we were in that place, we would not have done so. But let me tell you, we do it in many different forms and fashion. Maybe to not the scale of David's sin, but you and I do it each and every day as we displease the Lord with our actions. We're born in sin. We're conceived in sin. People are good at saying that we're all children of God, but we're really, truly children of disobedience, rebellious. The Bible actually calls us as enemies of God. That's how you and I stand. But what's great about God's justice here, it's about to happen. But this man, who was just given a great promise that exceeded all the promises that were given before. Your kingdom will last forever. Your children will be on the throne. The Savior, the Redeemer, the Messiah will come through you, forgets about God and sins against Him. But here's the thing. The greatest thing is we come to chapter 12. And just look at verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. That may seem like just a simple phrase. What in the world is that? But you know what? You ought to unline that. Because what you're seeing in that simple phrase is this great spiritual truth. God pursues David even in his sin. And let me tell you just a shortcut real quick. God pursues you even in your sin. What a great verse. The Lord sent Nathan to David. It reminds me of John 3.17 where it says that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us and that we were yet still sinners. What? Christ died for us. 
even in the midst of God's justice, and we will see God's justice will be pure and right, and it's going to be a heavy hand that he gives David, that what we're seeing here, right here, is God's grace in pursuing the sinner. It's the the father in the parable of the prodigal son running towards his son who had dismissed him and, and, and really had been very awful to the father who runs to him. Look with me in verse 1 through 6 as we continue with Nathan's parable. There were two men in a certain city, Nathan says, the one rich, the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he bought. And he brought it up and he grew with him and his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man. He was unwilling to take one of his own flock or her to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. In verse 5, then David's anger was greatly kindled against this man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who had done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Now he should restore the lamb fourfold is really the law. He didn't have to die in this case, but David's anger is such, this man deserves not only the full extent of the law, but he needs death. Well, Nathan tells David in verse 7, those famous four words, you are the man. You are the man. You are the thief. You took what was not your own. You can almost imagine Nathan had to be very concerned about his own safety at this point. But faithfully, he recounted the words of the Lord to David. You and I need to realize that you and I are no better than David. When it comes to sin, it's full-faced right at us. We too have been blinded. We too have made the journey into sin multiple, multiple times. And like David, we're that man. We deserve God's justice. Be a God in his love also gives us his grace. God reminds David of his blessing, then he passes judgment. And this is something for you and I to remember as we're considering, as we're contemplating that journey into sin. We need to bring into remembrance those things which God has given us. Look at chapter 12, verse 7. Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, David. What are you thinking? I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. That which was not yours, I took and gave to you. And if this were too little, I would have added to you as much more. So many of us, when we look and when we contemplate, and we take, it's like, it's covetousness. We're taking that which doesn't belong to us. It's turning down the promises and the blessings of God as if they are not enough. When you sin, that's what you're doing. You're actually denying the promises of God. Verse 9, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in this sight? You have struck down the Uriah, now here's the prosecutor. You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and you have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with a sword on the Ammonites. Now therefore, here's the judgment. In verse 10, The sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me. 
And you have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel and before the sun. Pretty harsh judgment. Especially coming on the heels of just wonderful blessings. David has ruined what God has given him. This neighbor that shall lie with his wives will eventually be his own son Absalom. Who will set it up on the housetops as David is thrown out of Israel. Thrown out of Jerusalem. The law here actually demanded both the death of both David and Bathsheba. Leviticus tells us if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulterer shall be put to death. In Deuteronomy, he says if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lays with this woman and the woman, so you shall purge evil from Israel. David knew this going into. He deserves death. Both he and Bathsheba deserved death, but yet God in his grace does not demand the death of either of them. But in verse 13, we see what this judgment does to David. To some, it would bring them to be angry with God. It would be some, it would be to defend their own honor, as we saw with this pastor earlier, this pastor Desiree. She comes and says, this is my own truth, and, and you should celebrate me for what is my truth and how I feel about my life. I refuse to be ashamed of my actions. For one who preaches the word of God has laid it aside and is determined to judge herself by her own truth, not by the truth of God. But what we should see here in verse 13, that repentance is going to lead to the grace of God. Verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also put away your sin, and you shall not die. He deserves death. Bathsheba deserves death. And let me tell you, you and I, because of our sin, we deserve death. For the wages of sin is what? Death. The penalty of sin is death. Retribution. Punishment and judgment will come on David, yet God is not done. And here's the greatest part of this story. It's not the judgment on David, but it's the fact that God is going to pour out his grace in the midst of a man who has dismissed him and his word. He pours out his grace. Like last week with the promise of God, King David is not an active initiator, but he's a passive recipient of God's grace. It's not that David sinned and then he cried out, Oh God, forgive me. Look at what type of sinner I am. No, God pursues him in the midst of his sin and him celebrating that he got away with it, that God comes and brings and gives him a wonderful gift, the gift of repentance. The same repentance that you and I need. You see, we deserve God's wrath as children of disobedience and enemies of God. Yet God in mercy saved us from his wrath by sending his son to bear our penalty and to earn our righteousness. God pursues the sinner. Underline this or write this in your notes in your Bible. God pursues the sinner. It's not vice versa. 
If you and I were left in our own condition, we would never pursue God. Amen? But God pursues the sinner. This passage is not just about God's justice or judgment or David's sin. This passage of scripture is a beautiful picture of God's grace and his love for David. God does not abandon his children. Theologian Dale David writes that all divine pardon rests upon the sacrifice of Jesus as an atonement for all sin. David will not have to die because Christ will die for him. David's genuine repentance is accepted by God through the work of Christ. Pastor Davis writes that God's forgiveness is always instantaneous because it's based upon legal grounds outside of us, not upon the condition of our soul. Listen to this. Confession of sin helps us to experience forgiveness. It does not produce it. And I want to say that and I add that because there's many of you that are paralyzed today because of previous past sins. Let me tell you that if you have put him under Christ, if you had trusted him, God has given you grace. If that repentance was true, that repentance, that confession does not produce it. It is something that God has done already. David would later write this wonderful prayer of repentance. This is a prayer that you and I all ought to pray. Would you write this down? Psalm 79 verse 9. Help us, O God, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name, deliver us and atone for our sin for your name's sake. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Paul informs us that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that we should all reach repentance. But let me tell you this, and I want to speed up just a little bit, is our repentance must be genuine. Paul writes to the church of Corinthians and 2 Corinthians that he rejoices in their sorrow of sin. For he says, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. Verse 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. And here's what I want to encourage you. There is going to be a time after sin where you will feel shame and guilt. But do not let that lead you to a worldly grief. But let it lead you to a true godly grief. One that's a sorrow for sin. For we see what earnest this godly grief has produced in you. And you'll see, how can I tell if I have godly grief or worldly grief? Am I glad that God forgives me or am I just sorry that I got caught and I'm suffering the consequences? He says this godly grief produced in you what eagerness to clear yourself, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you proved yourself innocent in this matter. What are we saying is one who comes and says, listen, God has carried the penalty for me. And I'm going to serve God. I'm going to let that lead me to rejoicing and to praising him. But let me tell you, even when repentance is genuine, even when God pursues us with his grace, this fifth point cannot be forgotten because consequences cannot be escaped. We can't always escape the consequences of sin. 
For we read of a terrible part here in verse 14 of 2 Samuel 12. God says, you will not die. But nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David and became sick. Sin leaves a mark. We see it in three different ways in this small passage. And stay with me if you would, please. First, sin leaves mainly, the first important part, is sin leaves a mark against God. Our sin causes, as we see here in verse 14, the enemies of the Lord to scorn God. The KJV translated, Because by thy deed thou hast given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. We see how this works even today. How many people accuse God of being hateful, bigoted, and unfair due to the actions and the attitudes of those who profess Christ? Whether we are talking about crusades or slavery or anti-LGBT attitudes, we are called hypocrites and that puts a mark against God. That's why Peter tells us, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, that when they speak against you as children of God, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Do not let them call you as an evildoer because of hypocrisy. Our sin is a mark against a holy God. For those of us who profess Christ's name and then are hateful, are spiteful, are covetousness, are adulterers, That leaves a mark against the testimony of God. It also leaves a mark against others. David goes through a week of emotional, mental, and physical agony in prayer and fasting, asking for God to change his mind and to restore the child back to health. Yet to no avail. The child dies in David's place. The innocent for the guilty. Just as Christ carried our sin and paid the penalty of God's wrath for us, this little child carried David's guilt and paid the ultimate price. Our sin can cost others. Many of you know this. As children of divorce, or children of split families, or alcoholism, drugs, we see that it mars not only our own life, but the life of others. And then thirdly, sin leaves a mark against ourselves. David suffers from the consequences of his sin. His life will never be the same. His kingdom, though safeguarded by the promises of God, suffers much damage. David's family suffers from rape, rebellion, jealousy, distrust, and even death. His children would be so terrible that they would even fight among themselves and even try to upset their own father. Though forgiven and restored, David cannot escape the marks of sin. And let me say this, and let me say this in a way with a pastoral heart. Some of you today may be still bearing the marks of the consequences of your sin. Even maybe after years of repentance, forgiveness, experience God's grace. Those consequences of sin may follow you into the gates or to the gates of heaven. Not into, but to the gates of heaven. 
but we should not despair. We should not give up, but realize that God is a good, holy God. And that even these consequences are a good gift from God. Hebrews 12, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted people. Please, brothers and sisters, don't go weary or faint-hearted if you're carrying the sins and the marks of sin. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addressed you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all you have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. I would say if you sin, Plead for God's chastening. Plead for his discipling, his disciplining. For if not, it would show that you are not his children at all. Rather to bear the scars and the marks of discipline than to go through life unchafed by our sin and meet a holy, wrathful God at the day of judgment. Let me encourage you, God's commands are not meant to keep you from blessings but to keep you from destruction. David in his journey into sin, and this is, not, this is his big one, it's not the only that he did. There are many things that David did that caused other men to die. Some in war, some in service, and in this case, for just being a recipient. But here's what I want you to end with. Number six, God restores David with blessings. For that's not the end of the story. If we just hear the child dies, it just leaves me empty, does it not you? But look at 2 Samuel chapter 12. And David comforted his wife Bathsheba. He went into her, and he lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And look at this, you may want to underline this. You see it? And the Lord loved him. His brother died. God killed him. But the Lord loved Solomon. And he sent Nathan message by Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. David's relationship with Bathsheba has started out as a selfish gratification of his lust. It grew, though, into a relationship of love and compassion. Your sin does not have to be your epitaph. It does not have to be your defining mark. For God can take your pain and heal them. Rick Warren says, God does not waste a hurt. For the relationship of David and Bathsheba grew into one of a relationship of love and compassion. Their union will produce Solomon, the child of grace, the source of comfort and grief for both. It will be Solomon who will continue to represent God's great promise of a righteous king. In Matthew 1.6, we read, And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Bathsheba herself finds herself now in the line of Jesus Christ. 
reconciliation and recognition was the reward for repentance. And let me share with you today. If you are in sin today, repent. For reward and reconciliation is reward for coming before a holy God. As we learned earlier, God's promises were based on his faithfulness, not on David's. Death does not annul it. Sin cannot destroy it. And time will not exhaust it. God's promise of grace have the same guarantee. You and I, the promise, you and I do not have the promise of David that our line will have the Savior. That's been done. But yet the salvation, the blessings of salvation cannot be annulled. It cannot be destroyed and it will not be exhausted. Amen? That's the salvation, the reward of repentance that you and I have. God has reconciled us to himself. God's promises of grace have the same guaranteed. John tells us if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen? So if you're here today, I want you to see these three things. You may be sitting here today, and as you read this passage, you may see David's great sin and say, boy, David is terrible. If you see that today, I'm going to be rough and say that you're a hypocrite. For your heart is no better than David's. You have the heart of a Pharisee who says, I'm glad that I'm not like this sinner who kneels before me. If you read this passage this morning and you see God's justice and you say, what a harsh God, his punishment, that's why I cannot believe in a God because he's going to kill an innocent little baby and he's going to do all these things and make David's life miserable on just for one mistake. Then we say you haven't seen the true story. For a God without justice would be no God at all. For we deserve the very same thing that David got, but much worse. The point of this story, the reality of this passage, is God's grace. For I will not take your life. God pursues the sinner. As you read these two chapters, I hope you read them anew. And instead of seeing David's sin at forefront, would you please see the grace of God? For as you look in that mirror in that dark night of the soul, and you yourself feel paralyzed by your sin, you feel yourself hopeless, I pray that you would see God's grace. Romans 8.1 There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. God's love for those that have repented and turned their hearts towards him is without any mixture of wrath. He loves you with a pure love. Not that you are the initiator of. You're just a passive recipient of a God who looks down and says, I choose you. I choose you. I choose you. I'd like to end with you three things. What should we do today? You say, you know, I want to enjoy God's grace. I want to enjoy the blessings and the promises of God. But yet I understand in this world that we will have sin, that we will fight to it, and I need to resist to the point of giving blood. How shall I do it? Let me give you three things and we'll end with that. Number one, be on guard against sin. David was not on guard. When we say the devil is like a roaring lion, we go back to what he says, resist him, firm in your faith, 
knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood against the world. You and I need to be on guard against sin. Do not feel like life has gotten to the place that you can defeat anything that comes against you. Do not feel invincible against Satan, for he is seeking to destroy your character and to draw. Be on guard. Number two, confess when you fall into sin. It will happen. We will sin. We get up in the morning and we sin with our feet hitting the floor. Proverbs tells us that whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses him and forsakes him will obtain mercy. And then thirdly, determine to live a life of repentance filled with grace. John the Baptist warns us, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not let it be worldly grief, but pray for the godly grief that makes a difference, a change in your life. Let me end with this. Since we have a high great priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. What's our confession? That Jesus is Savior. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. May you find grace this morning in the words of God. With every head bowed and every eye closed, as the worship team comes forward, I'd just like to give you a moment to take a moment to pause, to consider what the Word has said, the fact that God pursues us even in our sickness, even in our sin, ready to give us grace. Would you consider that this morning? Would you pray and respond this morning to what God may be calling you today? Would you turn and call out to him? Father, how wonderful you are. And we thank you for this grace. We thank you for your justice. But Lord, we are saved. We are rescued from your justice because it was paid by one who was innocent. The innocent for the guilty. Father, we give all praise and honor and glory to the Son who came and was obedient to the point of death, earning not only the penalty of our sin, but giving us His righteousness. And Father, I pray that you would encourage us, strengthen us to walk this life in one which is in direct obedience to your word. And Father, I pray if those times come, give us strength to resist, help us to fight sin. But when it happens, Lord, I pray that you would give us that gift of repentance that we can may confess our sin and be reconciled back to you. We trust in your promises. In your name we pray. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.